0: Hello, and welcome to this episode of the Bread and Goods podcast. I'm speaking to a very, very interesting person, Joey Politano, who is a financial management analyst at the Bureau of Labor St- St- Statistics. Although, as he will say, none of his opinions are uh, representatives of the U.S. government or the BLS. Uh, hi, Joey. Uh, nice to have you on the show.
1: Hey, thank you so much for having me. And yeah, um, all the opinions I say here are totally my own not anything from the bureau of labor statistics or from the u.s government so if you got a problem with what we say uh, uh blame me
0: <laughs> and and me but like and, right, right, also. Right, right. <laughs> um you talked about yield curve control in a recent post of yours i had a question about that how do we know qe works let me put you this way after the great recession the uh, fed did massive amounts of QE expanded the monetary base by some 30 40 percent in in those two years but it's not entirely clear if it had that much of a large effect on inflation and nominal GDP growth you know 40 uh, percent in the in the m0 that's that's quite a big number and you might say it was balanced off by uh, higher interest on excess reserves but how do I know for sure what's the place where I can where I can look at a chart and say, yes QE caused this.
1: Yeah, um that's that's a tough one and you'll you'll find that people at at central banks and uh, in in academic econ departments are also struggling to identify the exact effects of QE. I think um something I really wanted to to make clear in that post is that looking at like a quantity of purchases at the long end, a quantity of QE is really poor way of looking at it. So something like Japan's quantitative easing, their yield curve control program where they're targeting a 0% interest rate on government bonds, ten years out, and that actually doesn't require a lot of purchases, like a, a number, um, but it does require that level of commitment, which is more than the U.S. is doing. You know, ten-year yields in the U.S. are, are one point six percent nominally, probably a little lower than Japan in real terms, which is what what matters in this case. Um, but more specifically, here, like if you were to trying to drag ten-year yields down to zero percent, that would be um, more stimulative than just saying we're gonna buy more and more bonds uh, outright. And the other thing is you can say like, hey, we're gonna buy more bonds, but also interest rates are going up to 2%. Even though central banks won't do that, that's part of their policy um, of tapering that they won't do that. And it's a commitment they've made. There's no like rule stopping them. Um, The the best way I would say that we can identify um, QE's effect is looking at like, if you look at surveys of banks um, and of lenders, and you look at them around 2013, which was the taper tantrum when long-end yields rose dramatically, because uh, then Chair Bernanke was saying that they were going to end quantitative easing. Almost all of these uh, companies, all these banks are saying that financial conditions are tightening, and they're upset about it. <laughs> they don't like it. <laughs> um, and this was not something that was changing in you know the, the short-term rate. This was something exclusively in the long-term rate. So while I think it's very difficult to identify exactly how much effect it has. I think it's clear that it does have an effect.
0: But, okay, so there, there are a few theories of QE I'll, 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 I'll go through, and tell me why this are on. The first, I mean, it's quite clear that the um, that the simple, naive, monetarist model of uh, increased M0 um you know, and money supply go, goes up, it is wrong. But, and why is that wrong though?
1: That's a, that's a, a, a deep discussion. Um, and now this is you you trying to get me kicked out of the, <laughs> the group chat for saying things. Um, I think it's partly because defining base money is actually really hard when you think about it. You know, in ye olden times, it was very easy to say that all coinage was was base money. Nowadays, cash is about like three percent of reserves. And if you were to think about, say, like a, a T bill in the United States that yields basically zero percent right now, it's functionally indistinguishable from cash, um, except for like a one percent interest rate and some legal um, differentiation. You know, it's not insured by the FDIC; it's insured by by Treasury and the Federal Reserve. Functionally, um, so lo- looking at base money in general, you, you're going to get screwed up. Uh, for almost anything. I think the, the best way to think about it is you're basically lowering the expected path of short-term interest rates. And this is where it's like the most clear um, because, uh, and, and Scott Sumner actually talks about this very well. If you're doing temporary monetary stimulus, you're not doing monetary stimulus. <laughs> you're, you're chickening out. Um, and people know when you're chickening out that's the problem that Japan's had for a long time. Is there this implication that both that they can't do enough monetary stimulus and that were inflation to resume. People know that it would go away like that. Um, and so if you're doing it temporary, um, a temporary monetary expansion, most of that gets saved. Or to be more precise, the, the changing of short-term interest rates doesn't have that long effect. If people expect it to go back up in, in, the long run, people, a lot of borrowing is not done over short-term interest rates. A lot of borrowing is done over long-term interest rates, especially for um, non-financial corporations.
0: Okay, so that that's also the the yield curve control argument, right? That the that the Fed can successfully set the ten year set the yield on ten year current bonds because the because that yield is just a sees a future Fed uh, of expected uh, short term rates. If I'm if if I said that correctly.
1: Yeah, that's correct. Except I would also include um, there's a liquidity premium that you would expect. You know the reason why T bills have marginally higher yields than cash is because T bills are slightly less liquid, and in a, in a crisis, particularly, they'd be less liquid. Um, so there's that, and there's sometimes a default risk premium the, that is something you have to talk about in the United States. Uh, not the actual kind of you know big, not the Argentina kind of default where they physically can't make payments, but if the um, if there were a lapse in federal funding, like if there's another debt ceiling issue and people couldn't get it through Congress, that's a that's technically a default. The bonds don't get paid or they might not get paid. Um, so there is a marginal risk of that. But both of those, all of that is under the control of the Fed. And we, we see that in Japan uh, and we saw that in Australia. What I want to make real clear here, though, is that. Most of the time, if you're doing yield curve control, you've lost the plot. Um, <laughs> By, by which I mean, like, if you're in a situation where you're saying, hey, we're going to target 0% interest rates on 10-year bonds in order to try to get inflation above, you know, ab- above a negative number, like Japan is doing, you're way past uh, the, where, where the source of the problem was. Uh, the source of the problem in Japan is, like, both the aging demographics and, like, 30 years of being stuck at the zero lower bound. Uh, and in, in a situation like that, I think it's much easier both from a uh, political perspective perspective and an economic perspective to just say like the, the central government's going to borrow a ton more money and send it out to, to individuals. Um, you know, we're just going to boost nominal incomes as, as high as they can go. And we're going to keep, we're going to keep boosting it. You know, the growth rate will keep going. Uh, we're not going to give up on this after two years, once we see inflation. Um, to be clear, the, you want a constant growth rate in incomes, not like an accelerating growth rate in incomes. Again, that's the Argentina problem.
0: <laughs> okay, so um, on that, so if the if the if the Fed says tomorrow just hypothetically said tomorrow morning they said we're going to um, we're going to buy and sell enough treasury bonds till we get the 10 year rate uh, at 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 minus 1% for example okay uh, how would that affect the real economy this is a complete extreme hypothetical that's useful in thinking the consequences they said or or, or just 0% how, how would that affect the rest of the real economy
1: well the first thing you would see um especially in the us context is like mortgage rates dip to probably near zero or below zero. Um, and you, you do see negative mortgage rates, negative nominal mortgage rates in places like Denmark. That's really important for the US because of how big um, housing is. You would see a lot of non-financial corporations like normal large businesses you know, issuing long yielded bonds at very, very low rates. Um, and all of that would translate as higher income and spending particularly on the business side and to a lesser extent on um, the side of high net worth individuals who would benefit from, from rising asset prices. The bigger, the bigger thing to focus on is like you would see pretty serious expansion of uh, corporate debt and then corporate spending and you would hope that that would be enough to you know, translate down into higher income and wage levels um, no. it, again, if I, I don't think that would ever happen. By the way, I don't think the Federal Reserve is ever going to do negative rates unless there's a massive disaster. Because they're convinced, rightly or wrongly, that being the reserve currency requires them to have at least a zero percent interest rate um, in the short term and at least a like slightly positive short interest rate in the long term. And being the world's reserve currency is a, a big deal for the U.S. I, to be clear, I don't agree with that view. Not I agree that it's a big deal. But I don't think if you went to negative rates, you'd lose reserve currency status. Um, but I think that that's what goes through the heads of people at the Federal Reserve. Where they're worried about um, short-term financial flows at negative interest rates, and they're worried about particularly international choices about currencies and debt.
0: Sure. Wouldn't in this zero in this controlled situation, I think what I was least convinced with in the argument was that I, I thought market-based rates would would go up uh, re- really quick. Take the example of let's say the Fed says the 10-year bond is is at zero, okay, but then a corporate bonds would still be priced at zero plus the inflation rate. Or they 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 wouldn't rely entirely on the uh, nominal rate as the best measure of of the opportunity cost of. Uh, Investing now, they just make up for it by charging higher rates in the in in the corporate bond market. So I'm not quite convinced uh, how much um, corporate yields w- w- would change and, and even mortgage debt as it, as you said if the if the if the Fed did that.
1: Well, you can look at uh, like Japanese corporations issue at very very low nominal rates, um, and I think a few have done negative um, for similar term periods. I think to the extent what you're describing is like a little off base when you're thinking about financial flows purely in, in nominal dollar terms, but you're correct that people still, you know, they expect a, a non-zero real return on something. I think that's why you see more rebalancing towards um, which is what you want to see. You want to see more rebalancing towards riskier assets. You want to see more rebalancing in particular within corporations towards Uh, capital assets with higher real returns. You know, you want companies investing in factories and um, computers and, you know, all that good stuff. Uh, I think, I think what, what this is another thing worth touching upon is like the, the interest rate primarily works for corporations um, to a lesser extent, much lesser extent works for consumers. I am convinced uh, at this point that consumers are completely, do, do not change their behavior at all based on interest rates, except for a very select few who are investors or otherwise receive the majority of their, their wealth and net income from assets. Uh, like I don't actually think anyone makes, <laughs> in a meaningful macroeconomic people making decisions about when they buy a home based on rates. That's not to say on the margins there are people who do, but I'm saying that when you account for everyone in the consumer spectrum, I don't think a change in interest rates really affects um, a change in home buying, except how it affects incomes and uh, wages. You know, people buy more homes when they make more money, unsurprisingly.
0: An argument I hear from somewhat what would be what we call post-Keynesian Twitter says that even it does affect for corporations also. If you look at a business fixed investment, you know, and the real interest rate goes down, it doesn't uh, affect theirs. I mean, I think even the term of the term real interest rate, it has virtually zero correlation with any of the economic variables we can measure uh, that that should be connected, like corporate bond issuance or, uh, or or, 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 or uh, business investment. What's the argument against that? It's it's and and even if you survey CFOs it's not clear that 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 they consider uh, interest rates as the limiting factor in investing uh, in fixed assets
1: yeah i agree um so so in a sense this is one of those weird things where like you bring up people not investing japan has had this problem forever now where their their corporate sector just saves a ton of money i think corporations made up 30% of saving in japan um, Pre pre COVID, don't quote me on that, but this is also a, a country with a very high savings rate, and corporations are net savers, which is completely different um, than most countries. And they're not investing in um, a lot, a lot of fixed assets within Japan. Uh, I think part of it, and and I have read papers that are trying very hard to identify the effect of everything from like tax policy to interest rates on business fixed investment. It's real hard. And I commend anyone for trying. Um, I'm not convinced that you, there's zero relationship. I think the problem is um, similar to, to the problem with identifying spending trends as consumers is that they respond to a whole host of factors that change all at once. And real interest rates like during COVID real interest rates are down way, 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 below where they were even just before COVID. And you wouldn't, you're not seeing like a massive, you're seeing a rise in in fixed investment, but it's not massive. Um, And I think part of that is just like, yeah, people were concerned about very high levels of unemployment. They expected really low levels of GDP growth. They expected really low levels of wage growth. So of course they're not going to invest in um, productivity, saving technology, even if, interest rates are pushing them on the margin into more investments. Um, I also want to be clear. There's like a weird thing that you sometimes see. This is not not a PK thing, but like a, a financial world thing where you're like, oh, the reason why people are investing in, in Google and Facebook and, uh, you know, the tech world, so to speak, is because the real economy, quote unquote, is suffering like factories and you know, other forms of real output are doing poorly post Great Recession, so everyone just piled onto these tech companies. That's why they have sky high valuation. And I want to push back on that a little bit because <laughs> I think the bigger reason why Google has a sky high valuation is because they've compounded their revenue by like twenty percent a year <laughs> for a decade and a half. Um, I don't, I don't think it works in that sense where people are like starving um, more industrial or value oriented companies. Because of low growth rates, but I do think it works in the sense where, like, just aggregate investment, especially within companies, is um, much lower because of lower growth rates.
0: Yeah, no, I, I, I completely retry uh, raising capital as a shale investor in US 2014, it's, and it's not that the that that, that interest rates are hitting just that people really hated shale in in 2014, but um. Wouldn't this mean that 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 like if I took an extreme version of your point that the real industries don't do that much for um, for uh, corporate and household investments? Wouldn't it mean that monetary policy is ineffective? We should then follow the uh, Stephanie Kelton solution: keep it at zero all the time and um, spend as much as you want. And if and when you need, you need to control in uh, in uh, inflation, tax it back. What's the like? I can see somebody listening to this and saying and drawing this conclusion out of it because it's not entirely clear how effective monetary policy is on uh literal fixed investment and and whatever drives nominal spending.
1: Yeah, I've um I've come around to the idea that you could theoretically. So this is something um people in the MMT space sometimes call like teaser permanent zero interest. Rates for government, or just permanent zero interest rates. Period. I think it's possible that you could run an economy with zero nominal interest rate and do everything through fiscal policy. Um, I think that's really undesirable, both because there's a the a strong there is a strong lever that monetary policy pulls in the short run, um, and in the long run, it's something where. Uh, you could very easily get stuck. You know, Japan is has massive deficits in nominal terms and they have zero percent interest rates and they are stuck stuck, um, partially because they don't use monetary tools to their full effectiveness, and just partially because, like, if you're stuck for a decade or two at zero percent interest rates, um, that's very persistent under investment. That means monetary policy has been real tight for that long um, and if you're doing everything through the fiscal side which fundamentally is a much closer to a political process uh, and much closer to elections than monetary policy you run the risk of like a bad election throws you into a situation where um, interest rates at zero percent are actually too tight you know there's not enough income growth and because of that Expectations about real growth decline dramatically. And now you're, you know, if you believe in R star, it's declining dramatically. And now you're stuck. (laughs) And being stuck where Japan is is not enviable. It is not a fun time. Uh, I was I was looking at this recently. And if you look at gross labor income, like the the total wages and salaries of everyone in Japan, it has not grown in three decades, like absolutely zero growth in um, Slavery income part of that is like they have a shrinking workforce but the other part of that is like even if you look at at median nominal wages it's like barely any actual growth and you're basically subjecting the majority of of Japanese workers to zero nominal growth and the majority of Japanese companies to a situation where they're at the absolute mercy of downward nominal rigidity this idea that like you can't actually lower someone's salary in, in yen so even if the yen appreciates, even if it gains value and their real salary is increasing, you, <laughs> there's nothing you can do about it. So Japanese companies are really, really hesitant to hire people. If you look at um, hiring over the last like five, 10 years in Japan, it's all marginal jobs, like part-time workers, contractors, things like that. Because nobody wants the risk of hiring someone and then deflation kicks in and now you're paying them a salary that's worth you know 5% more than what you thought it was gonna be worth.
0: Japan might be the only economy benefiting from using Dogecoin. <laughs> <laughs> oh man! Yeah, no, no, no. I no, was, was just a straight thought that came in my head. Um, You've you written against R star and sort of like the the guiding tools that central bankers like to use. What is the um, if not R star, which the the standard Keynesian concept? How do you measure the the stance of monetary? policy. How do I know if policies start to lose? Because it's clear nominal industries don't do that. And like even real industries are, are sort of like iffy on it, that they're, they're okay, is good, not very good.
1: Yeah, I think, um. so so my opposition to R-star is not as like a theoretical concept, this idea of like, hey, there's a natural real interest rate. And if policy is above the natural real interest rate, then, then the economy is tightening. If policy is below the natural real interest rate, then um, nominal incomes are growing and you're having maybe excess inflation. Um, I I don't object to it on a a theoretical level. I think it's actually a very good way of explaining monetary policy and in a way that sometimes is more clear than how it's normally explained. The problem is when you take like what is essentially a very um, rudimentary explanatory model and then try to like force the world into it uh, <laughs> you know, there is the, the Federal Reserve and a lot of other central banks calculate or estimate R-star and they do as good a job as you can, but fundamentally, like it's a it's an unknowable variable. It's something that exists in the background of, you know, all these uh, transactions that are occurring every day. And it's something where like, if you had, had told me, like the, the federal government is setting the natural price of, um, I don't know. They're setting the natural price of grain, you know, the natural price of food items. I tell you that you're you're crazy, but suddenly, like the Federal Reserve comes out and says we have a natural rate of interest, and everyone's like, ah, yes, I see where this is coming from. Uh, and so my my criticism isn't like, hey, throw out the whole concept. My criticism is like, don't use it to pilot. Um, and the 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 guiding star for me is like incomes, and I I personally really think that you should be looking at aggregate. Um, income growth, and you should say like, okay, if incomes are growing in the, in the U S like historical levels would be about 4%, you know, we'll say per capita, just to make it more comparable. If incomes are growing 4% on nominal terms per year, you're good. If they're growing at 3%, you have a problem. If they're growing at 5%, you're, you have a problem in the opposite direction. If you have too high growth and you're probably generating excess inflation. And I think the other, the real benefit of this approach is, both that you're you're taking something much simpler to focus on and you're ignoring um, inflation in the short run. Uh, A lot of the problems we have now are like American incomes are on trend like incomes and spending are about where you'd expect them to be had there been no pandemic Uh, but inflation is sky high and that is a problem like the price of things going up is bad Um, but It's not a problem for the central bank in the long run, because as long as incomes are only growing at 4%, you can't physically have inflation, long run inflation, longer than 4%. In reality, you're going to have it at about 2% because you're going to have about 2% real wage growth. That would be about consistent with uh, America's long run levels. Uh, and so this is a lot easier to focus on, you know, everyone's worried about did the Fed overstimulate um the economy was was fiscal policy too generous. And I could just say, you know, incomes are on trend, spending are on trend and you, you wipe your hand and you're like, I don't need to look at anything else um, to say that fiscal and monetary policy are doing their job. Now, obviously, fiscal policy has more levers where you're saying, you know, what's going on in in healthcare and government spending and, you know actual real productivity growth. But from a nominal level, the recovery is complete and it's on track.
0: I have two objections to that. <laughs> the first is that um, when people talk about NGDP growth as a target and as a measure, it seems a sort of tautological, right? You say, uh, "What? what's the problem? Low income growth. How does the Fed do it? In, uh, increase uh, income growth. It's if. If you were the sort of person who didn't believe that, that monetary policy had an effect, it would it would feel like you know connecting to using two uh, ultimately unconnected uh, uh, variables. There's no clear outside test here, and my, I, and my second is um, obviously if nominal growth is uh, constant. Um, in the long run, inflation should should also be constant. But that's but that's assuming no supply shocks, right? If, for example, it were permanent, like uh, imagine that that the um, cloggings in ports in Los Angeles and and Shenzhen wouldn't go, wouldn't be cleared for uh, twelve months or two years, three years. Would your views change on that?
1: So, so to your first point, I try to be. Um... I try to be diplomatic because I think I have a lot of followers who are very, um, who very much think that monetary policy controls nominal incomes. And I have a lot of followers who think the exact opposite, who think that like, both that they don't control them in the short run and that their effects on them in the long run are really um, finicky. And just, you know, I'm a, I'm much more on the side of monetary policy controls nominal incomes. But if you, know, if you were on the side of saying, okay, it doesn't in the short run, then you, you know, the blame, both positive, the blame and the, the rewards belong to the federal government belong to fiscal policy. And you can say the same thing, fiscal policy preserved national incomes, it was mostly, especially uh, the stimulus checks, you know, in a situation like COVID, uh, monetary policy does become pretty ineffective at the zero low round. So you needed more spending from the fiscal side. Um, so if you're, If you want to be like very generous, say the government as a whole, monetary and fiscal policy is on track. Um, I still think you need to look at nominal incomes. Um, To your second point, like about the the tautology and about like the, the three year period. If you if you came up to me and said, you know, the supply chain issues are going to take three years, like real GDP, real output is going to be low for three years. Are you just are you going to cut nominal spending to? ameliorate that, I would still tell you no. And the reason is, is basically because businesses um, in particular, make their investment decisions in large part in a nominal world. Um, And, you know, particularly debt and financial flows are all obviously nominal. So if you have a situation where um, nominal incomes are growing at 4% and then real incomes tank for, you know, a, a real exogenous shock like COVID, businesses still have to make, pay their debts. <laughs> that doesn't go away. And by, you know, pulling back on, on nominal incomes, all you're really doing in a sense is saying, we're going to displace the inflation, the, the lower real um, income growth, instead of just absorbing it as inflation, we're going to absorb it as, you know, increased business failures, increased business indebtedness, and lower um, employment levels. Which I don't think is is good at all. So if you told me three years, even if you told me like five years, it's going to take for our GDP to get back to normal, I would still say um, you should keep nominal nominal flows growing at a constant rate. And I also advocate for um, catch up policies on income. So if like uh, if nominal incomes sort were to of dip below trend, I think you need to push them to go back to trend and then above trend for a short period of time. Because you need to balance out, especially debt flows.
0: What's the what's the discount that you're counting here? What if that that, that five years became seven or ten? How do you, you use? I think that? seven.
1: I think seven is my limit.
0: <laughs> <laughs> okay, okay, like so, like completely arbitrary. Yeah, no. You yeah, that.
1: completely arbitrary limit. But if you told me that, like, if you told me, um, if you told me real GDP growth is down for seven years, and is it that means it's functionally not going to recover? Um, and that means you have to work out problems in the real space. Um, most problems in America with GDP growth are not actually in goods. They're in services, um, healthcare, especially. But if you said, I don't know, like goods, transportation is going to be a drag, like real output in goods is going to be down for at least seven years, you know, below trend. At that point, you're what you're actually talking about is there's been a permanent shock to good spending. Um, and to to goods output that needs to be fixed, you know some something broke uh, really badly that needs to be fixed. and that's not something that monetary policy can do.
0: Okay, um, I want to ask you about something that's completely different now. There's the idea called the Netflix principle in lighting. like you know Netflix supposedly doesn't buy sports content because it it's like only for two weeks or whatever. And basically it tries to buy and make stuff that's, that can be viewed five years, 10 years down the lane and, and you'd still like it. Some of your stuff is very much like that. Like the posts on uh, R start or the, or the posts about yield curve control or the ones about the video games. Uh, how do you decide uh, about the duration of your uh, posts? What, what's the model behind the term structure of
1: your your blog? That's actually a really interesting question. Um, so I have, mo- you're correct, most of my posts, I think could be viewed totally um, absent of whatever's going on in the world. Uh, and generally the, the, the benefit of individual like blogging, I don't have an editor. I don't have to be beholden to, to anybody. And I can just write about RSR star if I think that's important or the yield curve if I think that's important. Um, and I do have, uh, generally, I think what happens is I have a backlog of ideas that I want to get through, that I want to write about, um, and at this point, I think it's maybe a hundred bullet points of like different ideas that eventually I'll get to, uh, <laughs> and and I'll I'll pick one of them that I'm you know over time, it'll be like stewing in my head. I'll get enough stuff, like I'll I'll notice, oh, this is an interesting data point. And most of my work is done data first, and then writing later. It's like this is an interesting data point. I should explore this more. Blah blah blah. This is an interesting paper. I like this. I'm gonna write about it, uh, and then it gets published, the, the difference is I would say about half of my stuff is the complete opposite. It's like sports content, like you said. It's, a, <laughs> it's stuff that's very short-term shelf life or I'm responding to something that's going on right now or I'm writing about like uh, October's inflation release, which really isn't that relevant two years from now. Uh, and I think the, the difference with for me on that is like, I have to be hit by, this is real important. And this has to be done now, like people should read about this now uh, for me to publish something that's not Netflix content, that's not permanent stuff. So the inflation, inflation is very, very high right now. And I saw a lot of people talking about, you know, and, and worrying about it. And I thought, OK, it's really important right now that I read about inflation because so many people are talking about it. And frankly, there's so much stuff that I think is misguided or wrong that I had to address. But um, yeah. In, in general, I think the majority of my writing is the Netflix content. It's only rarely that I get like that specific inspiration that I have to follow immediately.
0: How would you design the ideal
1: stable coin? Wow. Okay. This is a circle. So stable coins are, are really interesting to me, actually, um, both because they're functionally navigating around an entire network of uh, both the banking system and capital controls, especially in places like Turkey or China that are designed to prevent people from freely moving their, their money around. Um, the big problem to me is that most stable coins aren't really backed the way they should be. These are, these are bank deposits, like on steroids in terms of risk where you could, you know, uh, Tether is a great example. There's $72 billion in Tether. Um, not everyone is going to physically go to Bank of America and try to withdraw their money or transfer it to another bank in one day, because Bank of America is backed by the FDIC. Tether is backed by nothing, so if there was like a disaster in crypto world, there's a possibility that Tether could face billions, capital B billions, dollars of redemptions in like a 24 hour time period. You know, they have two billion dollars of issuance per day now. You know, it's very, it's conceivable to me that you could have something like 10. Or even $15 billion in redemption requests in a single day. Um, and for something that volatile, the only answer to me is that everything has to be in either backed directly by the Federal Reserve, like a stablecoin would have to basically be a narrow bank working with the Fed, or it has to be at an existing FDI insured American bank. Um, most of these stablecoins aren't USDC, which is the Coinbase product has been transitioning towards that where they're only going to help hold T-bills and mostly cash. Uh, but Tether, first of all, it was a black box for like <laughs> the majority of its, rent, uh, of its lifespan where nobody knew what it was actually backing Tethers. Uh, and now we know, and the picture is less rosy than you'd like, it's, it's not that much cash. It's a lot of T-bills and really critically, it's a lot of commercial paper, which is um, short-term corporate debt given by AAA corporations, but nobody knows what companies. <laughs> uh, and, you know, if it's Apple's debt, I think that's probably safe. I don't think it's safe enough that I put it in a stable coin, but it's safe enough where I'd say it's not a disaster. I think the risk is that it's like another crypto organization, um, another crypto organization's corporate debt, and that it's, you know, not actually technically would be AAA rated in, you um, by like Moody's or like a real serious person on Wall Street wouldn't say that this is golden. Yeah, there's no way this crypto firm is going under.
0: <laughs> with your with your um, ideal stablecoin, haven't you just reinvented narrow banks?
1: Yes, functionally. Okay. I think the the advantage of a stablecoin, the really really big advantage, is like it's a programmable narrow bank. You know, it's physical cash that you can code with. That is incredible. That is nothing short of a revolution in finance. But for it to be physical cash that you that you can code with, it has to be, uh, you know, yeah. it has to be cash. <laughs> it can, <laughs> yeah. Nobody wants to code a T-bill. I would not code a T-bill. <laughs> I would not code corporate debt. Um, yeah. That's why I think in the long run, you know, and you're seeing this now, like Tether is moving towards more cash, like I mentioned, USDC is mentioned moving towards more cash, both because they want to please regulators and because I think they realize now that there's real risks of them getting blown up by um, something that that occurs in in markets. Um,
0: no, I think if tether, I think the on instead way. we have nothing backing us I think they would, <laughs> they, would they would still be used the same right? it's um uh, sort of like both the dollar and Tether are, are I mean cults are like way weird but the dollar is a cult that like people believe it, it has no <laughs> intrinsic value but like we 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 just keep running the ponzi scheme for as long as this and same for like Tether right people, until like everybody collectively decides. If if if, if tomorrow everybody collectively decides, okay, we're not gonna fund any more US bill auctions, it's like the world is gonna, gonna come crashing down. But same thing for tether They said we're not gonna buy any more of this, it's gonna come crashing down. It, it, yeah. It's just a collective belief they have that it's gonna happen. It, yeah, it doesn't it, matter what tether, tropical, tether yeah. owns, you know. <laughs> it really doesn't matter.
1: Um I I I think the the one you know the one big difference is that uh you know the US has taxes Uh, taxes and also an army (laughs) tether has neither of those um
0: i don't get it how does the army make a difference
1: well uh, mostly because my my point is you can you know enforce property rights in dollars you can't enforce property rights in tethers so if you had a situation where um so so what you're describing is like the last last trade problem this idea that like hey you know, if you knew that the U.S. was going to collapse next year, like, mm-hmm. of course you wouldn't hold dollars. And eventually, all countries collapse. So, what? Why does it make sense to hold dollars now if you know eventually the U.S. will collapse? And there's nothing real, you know, behind a dollar; it's just a piece of paper. And I think the the compelling answers I have found is basically that um, any post-U.S. society, you would still have property rights, and you would still have um, it's you know distinct levels of income and jobs and stuff that would be enforced and fundamentally you know all enforcement comes from uh policing and and military power not to get too like philosophical on it but you see really weird stuff like this where like after the fall of this uh, of the russian empire the majority of people in high level soviet positions were russian nobility not you know, (laughs) random workers, they didn't get elevated to be commissars, it was people who were, like, um, high-level officials in the Russian government pre-revolution, and you see the same Mm -hmm. thing afterwards, where, like, okay, the Soviet Union collapses, and the majority of people in high-level roles are former Soviet officers, you know, Uh, (laughs) Putin's a KGB agent, (laughs) and and I think there's at least a compelling argument in my mind that, like, what gives money its value is it's, you know, enforced social uh, role. And even if the physical piece of paper goes away, eventually, because they all do eventually, you know, the enforced, um, enforced property rights and enforced incomes and enforced social roles, even if you are in, you know, a Soviet society where there's no actual property rights, those don't go away.
0: You just give me a very good blog post idea. Have you noticed that in every single revolution, the people running it don't change? Uh, let's let, like 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 it's like there's this famous paper called "Persistence Through Revolutions," and it's about China. And I, I think you you may have that. It's just like the same people under the ROC government, like eighty percent, and then just end up being you know, the ones who didn't flee to Taiwan, and uh, end up being high levels under the PRC. In Japan, they like the emperor. Didn't, didn't change and nothing changed to the American, this thing. And as you mentioned with, 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 both the, the Russian things, nothing changed. So the answer is uh, I, I hate to be a conspiracy theorist, but yes, there is a cabal of elites controlling the world. And no matter how many times
1: you draw, <laughs> the same people be in charge. <laughs> um, I, I don't think it's, it's, it's not quite like that, but I think it is like, um, what people underrate is like, there's a, you know humans are social animals, and there's a social foundation to a lot of um, power relationships. Where like if you're, and, and this was the really key insight in like the um, in the Soviet paper, you can actually look at another good example is like post uh, the U.S. Civil War. All of these plantation owners rightfully had their um, plantations seized. You know they were kicked out, um, and the the Plantations were sold in parts, you know, so these were people who were extremely wealthy and powerful and the civil war took away their wealth and power, which they shouldn't have had. Um, and then you look like a generation later and their children are wealthy and powerful again. And you're like, what happened here? <laughs> and the answer was that even though you took away the physical and the, the assets that they had, um, they maintained that social power. They maintain those relationships with people in upper levels of government and in upper levels of business and they use those relationships to regain the you know the monetary assets That's the same thing you saw in the soviet union where it's like yeah these are people who you know they're even though they're they're nobles or they're like local lords or or even just um wealthy or smart people in the the russian empire when the soviets roll in you know and the and the soviets were, among the groups that, uh, among the revolutionary groups, the Soviets were probably the least nice. Um, Even when they rolled in, the majority of those people just found upper-level levels in the Soviets.
0: I think the Chinese were the least nice.
1: Yeah, I think the Chinese were the least nice. (laughs) High competition, (laughs) but... um...
0: (laughs) Okay, yeah, no... I, I see I your, see your point there. I think I'm 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 gonna write a neo reactionary blog post about it. it the, There's an Illuminati, just it's just your uh, it, it's like five levels up your bosses, but <laughs> <laughs> no, no, no. Um, what's the most uh, heretical view of yours among your peers, among the general monetarist teens, and like um what view of yours is you know the most controversial among them?
1: Oh wow. Um, so you really are trying to get me kicked out of all the group chats. This is, <laughs> um,
0: I spoke to Tom like half an hour ago I and mean, like one hour ago and he said, you're doing this. I'm like, yes, yes, yes. That, that's my secret aim. <laughs> we need more, um, conflict, not, not less. More
1: conflict. Man, this is, this is actually difficult because I feel like there are, I feel like the big problem that, uh the group chat has, if, if there's anything, it's like the, the, the sphere of Twitter we're on where it's like um, very niche monetary policy, econ Twitter, uh, is that there is often too much, how should I put this? I don't wanna cl- say like doomerism or like um, overreaction. But I think there's an extent that you've seen over like the last year where um, monetary policy actions have become really, really politicized. And I think I think monetary policy is very, very important. Um, But I think people have gotten way too worked up over like the margins of monetary policy, where you see stuff where people are like anytime, anytime the Fed is raising interest rates, they're they're kicking. They're looking to kick people out of work to keep inflation down, which is not what it's. What, not what is Jerome Powell's goal, not what the FMC's goal is. Yeah. Or on the flip side, you see people who are like, you know, freaking out about how high inflation is and saying that we need like rapid hikes right now. Like interest rates should be up, you know, maybe up one or 2%, uh, which would be really high really quickly to combat this, where you're also like, this is, <laughs> it doesn't make any sense. So I think there has been a level of, hyperpolarization that's the best word. There's been a level of polarization around Fed decisions. Um, even stuff like, I like Jerome Powell. I think if President Biden replaced Jerome Powell, I don't think it would make that much difference. Um, and to be clear, I support Powell's renomination. I think it would be, I think it's a better decision. Um, but I think fundamentally, like if you're pro or anti Powell getting re- reappointed and arguing about it on Twitter, the, diff- the, the actual difference between policy, uh, between these people is very small. You see this is, to a lesser extent, I'm not trying to specifically pick on-, on Do You hear my, my typing sound?
0: <laughs> that's that's out sort of me canceling you. <laughs>
1: <laughs> there's But there's like an extent to which um, Employ America, you know, Employee America supports, and I'm not speaking for them, Employee America supports Powell's renomination. And there's progressive, like the fed up campaign opposes Powell's nomination. And they've they've fought about it. They've like exchanged barbs about whether he should be reappointed or not. And I'm like, you guys, there's zero difference between the two of you in most people's minds. Like mo- <laughs> the difference between, and not that it's not important, but I'm like, you don't need to be so toxic about it. And I think you also need to like keep, keep good, um, keep a good understanding of what the real stakes are. Because if you understand what the real stakes are, you can actually focus on what's really important. What's really important is that like Biden has three seats to fill on the FOMC. He can push um, for much much better monetary policy. And sometimes I think the specific fight of like, oh, does Powell get renominated or not um, overshadows like other important stuff that's going on in monetary policy. Yeah. I, so my big thing is everyone should calm down like turn the temperature down <laughs> five <laughs> degrees yes yes
0: uh, yes no i won't be canceling you now <laughs> my last last question to you is you're a political science major and an econ double major what does econ have to learn from political science
1: oh boy wow you really are trying to get me canceled
0: <laughs> no i just i i i just like so, pushing people's questions the podcasts are boring
1: i don't like boring podcasts <laughs> The, so, so to give a little context on my story, I actually went into undergrad just wanting to do poli-sci. Um, I thought that would be, uh, I was really passionate about it. I thought that would be best. I thought that would be what I would, um, stick with. And I took econ as a minor cause I thought it was, I was like basically thinking I need, I might need an actual job. I mean, <laughs> if this doesn't work out, I might need to convince someone to hire me. And they're not going to do it if I have a poli-sci degree. They might do it if I have an econ degree. Um, I think the really big thing, and I lean this way, um, is that there are two things that I think econ should take away, especially the public discourse about econ. The number one thing is that the, in, in America and in any democratic country, the biggest and sometimes sole constraint on government action is... Um, electorate, you know, you're never, the reason why we don't, you know, we're getting the salt deduction, but no carbon tax is because because of the electorate. Um, the reason why these these bills look the way they do is because of the electorate. And the reason, part of the reason why the um, post COVID recession was so much better than the post 2008 recession is because of the electorate. Because everyone to a lesser extent um, banded together in like the immediate aftermath of COVID and both parties were willing to pass these very large spending bills because everyone recognized that they were, they individually were suffering and we're only going to support people who alleviated that suffering when in after 2008, it was like, there was a big constituency that was anti more spending because At, it was- going, Because of who was going to. Right. Huh? Yeah, do, do, both, do, both the anti-bankers thing, because right, like in doing, fiscal policy in the wake of a financial crisis seems kind of fake to most people. It's Mm -hmm. like, why are we spending money? You know, when the mistake was this over in wall street and uh, it's very easy to say, Hey, like COVID's absolutely destroying everything. We're going to spend some money to fix that. That's a much bigger sell, a much easier sell, excuse me. Um, And the second thing I would like to say is that a lot of the specifics of policy, like the general broad strokes of policy are purely electorate but the specifics are almost always like elite um, consensus or or elite infighting. Uh, By which I mean, like, yeah, you get um, a really big spending bill in uh, in response to COVID-19, but things like really, uh, the good examples were like the restrictions that were taken away from the Fed. They were authorized to do these like municipal lending Stuff and then those um, those facilities were taken away um, in January. That's all like elite bickering and consensus. No, no normal person cares about the Federal Reserve's municipal liquidity facility. I hate to break it to you. <laughs> oh um, no.
0: Anyways,
1: <laughs> yeah. So, uh, it, but but that also means that like grass tops organizations, organizations that are really dedicated to trying to convince like the president or like the president's advisors of a policy position being good are actually really effective. Uh, And something I think people have missed over the last five years is there's a lot of like, what goes on on Twitter is really effective at changing policy because it's elite bickering, (laughs) because Twitter is not real life. Um, and, And primarily like what gets seen by you know the White House chief of staff is stuff that gets filtered through Twitter. Like he is very open that he uses Twitter a lot to gather information, um, and that goes up to President Biden. Uh, I'm not saying tweet more, but I am saying that like pay attention to elite um, disagreements and pay attention to elite consensus.
0: Okay, yeah, that's a that's a that's a fair argument. I I I don't think most econ people can. It's this. Uh, la- extreme specialization and lack of, you know, generalist skills. That because like if if you're in the business of getting policies passed, it seems very narrow-minded that people specialize on only making good policies rather than the getting passed part. I think that's a yeah. The, <laughs> but but the problem is those people end up in think tanks, not in academia. So.
1: Yeah, I mean, and it's also all, it's all a balancing act. So as much as I'm saying, like, pay attention to, um, to what's going on, it's, it's always important to recognize, like I said, the voters are what, the voters are what determine policy at uh, the most basic level. And the reality is like, whatever the elite consensus is, it works on the margins of um, the margins can be really important, especially when you're talking about something as big as federal government. But uh, at the end of the day, the voters control the country. That's how it's supposed to work in a democracy. And so you got to pay attention to what the voters want and what the voters support and what they do not support.
0: Okay. Yeah, fair. Uh, it's been great talking to you. It's late in night here, so I got to sleep. Um, <laughs> thanks for coming on. I think you have the most clear explanations of any guests on this podcast of like, QE and, and yield curve control in general. I, don't know, I have like six people on it. No offense to them. They were great. <laughs> but like, this is the clearest I've I've heard. So thanks for that.
1: Yeah. I really appreciate you having me on.
0: And like one day I'm going to call you just for a uh, development economics podcast. None of this stuff. Just stuff. I will,
1: <laughs> <laughs> I, I will have to joy-y. turn that one down.
0: Yeah. <laughs> it would be liable but (laughs) okay yeah so thanks for coming yeah thanks for having me again